Turn that on. But I suppose we um, we start with with Parvus and some revealing stuff there. I'm also I'm conscious of that just to give Lars a bit of background. We have while my project is called Marxism Translated, uh, we have um, we seem to have spent a lot of time on Parvus for the past I don't know um, maybe f four or five months. Um, with the first text being Opportunism in Practice, 1901, I do believe, and that was. Uh, a six-part series in uh, Deny It Sight, as we learned from Clara Setkin in the second piece, quite uh, controversial as well, the question of whether uh, Kautsky was on holiday when these uh, these pieces were commissioned caused a bit of a stink in 1901, but we'll return to that. Um, so obviously this isn't, the, the project was certainly not intended to be uh, Parvus translated, it was meant to, you know, have a broader range of yeah material from the the second international and i'll i'll talk about some of the things that i am working on and will be doing next week um later on but so so i said we, we've spent quite a lot of time on parvis and i don't want to go over too much uh, uh, of the ground we've covered before but i nonetheless think it would be worth having a look in particular at the uh, the zetkin text i just I, I, I want to say reread, but I think I just read for the first time, actually, because it's a while ago if I read it or not. The Hello, Ali. The uh, uh, Zeman, Zeman and Charlo book, Merchant of Revolution, um, which is, is very good. I mean, if you, again, it's very good if you extract yourself from the 1960s Western historiography on uh, Bolshevism, certainly. It's a bit better on social democracy in Germany, I think. But... Um, uh, very, very interesting. But what struck me about that book in particular was that it the main focus, and I think it's because the historian Zeman has, 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 had done a lot of work on the German war effort um, and, the, and the relations between Germany and Russia over the course of the war and subsequently. The majority of the book, it seems to me, is focused on Parvus, the huckster, as, as Zetkin would call him, right? Parvus, the... Um, Wheeler dealer. Uh, the wheeler dealer, you know, all the, the wangler, all these great words that, you know, you can look up for, for in German, it's, it's the, the general term is Sheba, which is literally a pusher, right? It's, it's a, 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 the, the, the pusher. Yeah, in, Russian, in Russian, it's Tokach, which is, uh, uh, also means exactly that, push. The put, yeah, the pusher, right? So, uh, but, you know, you could, there's also, there's lovely, there's a whole range of synonyms in, in English that I've drawn upon to get that across. But, but anyway, um, that, that's really the focus of the, the main focus of the book and when it comes to things like opportunism practice while it offers some contextual background which is useful um for example in, in relation to denoid site kowski's position etc uh, it, it's just very quick summaries of the articles and really doesn't get to uh where he's trying to the the the, the kind of I, I, it, it's it's maybe overblown to say unique position he adopts because he is reflecting other voices in the party as well, speaking for others. But I would say that there's something um, quite powerful and yes, in a way unique about his critique of Bernstein, which you know, maybe isn't found in, in others. And again, we've touched on upon uh, that a little bit in the past too. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's interesting, interesting, but obviously a, a, a fascinating character. Um, if we were going to talk about the, the term renegade that would clearly apply in this um, circumstance as well. Um, and I wanted to ask Lars a few questions about that in Russian, about how you know maybe Lenin and others dealt with him subsequently and, and, and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, lots, lots of information there. So that was opportunities in practice. And then I was reading the Zeman book and other things. I came across the Clara Zetkin piece, uh, 
And what's interesting about Clara Zetkin is that she really was one of his, not few friends, but really one, one of his closer um, allies in, in, in German social democracy, this guy that, that comes over to Germany. Um, has obviously has a lot of trouble. He only gets German citizenship when uh, when, when he's working for the, the German state, basically, uh, and obviously has a lot of trouble settling in. Um, but he goes to Stuttgart, which is significant for two reasons or two publications, two prominent figures, Karl Kautsky, uh, uh, Clara Zetkin, Die Neue Zeit, uh, Die Gleichheit, which again we'll talk about later on. Uh, and as far as I, I haven't seen any signed articles uh, from him as of yet, uh, because I'm just in the beginnings of looking at Die Gleichheit, but uh, Zetkin is one of the people who tries to give him an income. So there's this very, very famous passage in um, in Seyman and Charla where he talks about attending German party meetings, and he had to, he says, make sure that he didn't lift his feet too far from the floor when he walked, because his shoes had no salt. It basically was that poor uh, when he first arrived. Uh, and he's trying to cut his, he's trying to make a living basically from journalism. Obviously a very, very good journalist. That's one of the things you have to say about him as a writer. Um, and he, and Zetkin is one of the few people, read, not the few people, but she's one of the people that tries to draw him in and give him work. So he ends up writing pieces for Die Gleichheit, actually, which I didn't know until I read the, the Tayman and Charlotte book. Um, which which surprised me. Uh, I haven't seen any um, signed pieces by him yet, but that may also reflect an editorial policy. As far as I know, in the early days, Die Gleichheit was written pretty much exclusively by Zetkin. Uh, pretty much everything was written by her and not signed. Um, but one of the things that struck me from looking at the first three or four issues is just how much there is about Russia. That's really one of the striking, the striking themes of, of Die Gleichheit is Russia, not just in terms of the existing political situation, but kind of mini biographies, mini histories of some of the most important figures of the, the Russian women's movement, the, the, the martyrs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what, what, what years is this? So this is this is 1891. So it's really talking oh. about it's really talking about the, the populists and some and, and some of the populist populist activists. Um, because it's looking backwards. It's not looking forward to the 1890s and some of the things that are happening, more recent things that are happening in Russia, uh, which obviously Parvus, Zetkin and others would, would have been most aware of. But it's kind of saying, oh, look, look at this. Uh, um, I think Nessa was one. I have to look at the... Vera yeah, the, Zasulic the... would be one. Yeah, exactly. Zasulic. Uh, and so, so they're kind of history and they're looking very much to, you know, these selfless women who gave it all and also mentions uh, predominantly how... Uh, also a big focus on their background. So they're saying that, look, the proletarian movement uh, and the proletarian women's movement isn't just about women who work in a factory. Look at some of these Russian people who have given their lives to the cause. They've renounced their backgrounds. There's a little bit of Zetkin's own background there because she, her family disown her. She's from a well, relatively wealthy uh, background. Uh, marries a Russian, lives in Paris. Uh, very in, in in very difficult circumstances. Um, so yeah, the, the focus on Russia was was it struck me, and I think that maybe Parvus would have had an influence on her too. Um, I think Zetkin's uh, overall account isn't without its problems. I, I think you know certainly I think if you look at the the dating of it, we've certainly got the 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 early signs. I think, and again, Lars will. Uh, maybe fill this out because this isn't my subject, but I, I think there are signs of the cult of Lenin. There's a very much, you know, Lenin was the the only guy who saw this uh, thing. There's a there's slightly disparaging comments about Parvus and the peasantry, 
uh will you remember so parvis you know really um uh, well, the way she de she describes it anyway is that Parvis um, uh, downplayed the role of the peasantry, and that's certainly how uh, Zeman and Charlo put it. So they they argue that in 1905, for example, Parvis is unique insofar as he puts forward the work uh, a workers' provisional government, a workers' government provisional government, kind of closely aligned with Trotsky. But then um, you'll remember this book as well, uh, Lars, the uh, the Day and Guido book on permanent revolution. Parvis actually writes quite a lot on the peasantry, which isn't just dismissive. It actually looks more closely at the, the, the question of class alliances, et cetera. Um, but uh, yeah, I think there's a bit of, uh, of cult of, of, of Lenin involved in it, um, looking at the, uh, the question of the Russian revolution. Uh, but obviously she knew Parvis very well. Um, I say one of the few people that in this uh, 1901, I think it was in Dresden, the party Congress, uh, the Parvis controversy over this series of articles that we've just translated, opportunism in practice. Many people were upset with the tone and the directness of the of of the of the attacks. Uh, Babel said that uh, most of it is fine, uh, most of it's good as an attack, but sometimes we don't want to give our opponents too much to get upset about because his thing was, well, these people don't matter anyway. We're in the majority. We don't want it to kick up too much of a fuss. And then the question in 1901 of uh, whether Kautsky had seen the articles. And again, I, I haven't done too much of digging here, but obviously they were published in Die Zeit. Kautsky was the editor of Die Zeit, but apparently uh, Kautsky claimed at the Congress that he hadn't seen them before they were published because the Kautskys, as they always would every year, would have a long, I think three or four week holiday in I think near Saint Saint Gallen in Switzerland, they would like really, you know, as 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 uh, as keenly as Kautsky would get up every day and sit at his desk all day. Every summer, him and his family would go to the same holiday to have three or four weeks of uh, relaxation. And he was claiming that you know he hadn't seen these articles and their tone, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And generally, I think if you if you go if you wind back slightly um, to the initial outbreak of the revisionist con controversy. Kautz, both Kautsky and Bernstein, even though they're starting to come apart politically and very close friends starting to fall apart, they both have a certain mistrust of Parvis for you know, what, what, whatever reason. And, and neither of them are particularly happy with Parvis's kind of gung-ho approach uh, um, in, the, uh, in the local Sächsische uh, Arbeiterzeitung in East Germany, and that's in 1898. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's a kind of a brief overview of the text. It obviously contains a lot of material uh, uh, from from Zetkin, but like I say, even though I think that there is a certain, uh, there are occasionally projections into the past from the, the political context of 1924. Um, you know, I think she she was in a very good position to 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 write that piece. Um, she she knew him well, and you know, watch one of the, the 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 more provocative arguments, I suppose, is that while uh, Parvis was this standout unique firebrand figure that didn't really doesn't really fit into neatly into any categories in many ways he was a tupus as she said right a, a type she he represented the the rise of social democracy and then it's and then it's decay and she calls class trees and etc etc um so yeah i thought that was a useful text to translate that's now finished um so maybe we can we can throw it up into a little bit of discussion and or questions and maybe Lars you've got because you've been working well maybe you can t I'll let, let you talk about what you want to talk about as well because uh, I don't want to kind of uh, steal your thunder as it were um but I, I I thought it was quite interesting how some of these themes 
it kind of interlocked with with what you're working on and then maybe uh afterwards i can talk a little in a little bit more detail about die gleichheit where i'm at with that and what my plans are in the next few weeks and or months L Lars, would you like to say a few things first and then we'll open up well uh sure uh i'll try to just get things got rolling but uh you, first let's uh um about the date the 24 date that you mentioned this couple of times and i was just looking at the date exactly january 25 that's okay, right january 25 okay so that's important so so we've had we're a year since lennon's death and uh in uh, the fall of that year the trotsky thing started so okay. so looking more closely at the date uh, i hadn't I, I i had noticed that one thing that's missing you know if most of us, when we think of Parvis, we think of Parvis, Trotsky, and Permanent Revolution, right? That's what yep. we—that's what he's famous for. Or, or, and, but that's not talked about at all in the in the in the obituary. So I was wondering about uh, maybe the thing is is that you said the Lenin cult. Maybe it's the anti-Trotsky, uh, which is in part and parcel of a. I mean, it's well, all the polemics of that time were in the context of the Lenin cult, yeah. but uh, but it could be that. And the, the accusation that he didn't understand the peasants, that was the, one of the main things thrown at Trotsky. So yes. uh, so maybe that was the reason. Uh, we could go back to, I think there's some confusion about what people were saying about the peasants uh, in 1905, you know, with the permanent revolution, but we can talk about that. That's a little off topic. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, th there was one little note of uh, hardly criticism of Lenin and the, with the quote unquote unquote Russian comrades. It's on, it's on page three, I guess. And uh, he, she says um, something like the Russian comrades uh, really worshipped the German Social Democratic Party because they didn't they 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 saw it as the it was working. It was the there was the merger of, of socialism and uh, and the worker movement. It was going to move on and on, and so you know the, the Russian comrades includes Lenin, and indeed that's what, what I've been saying and other people have said before me, is that the Bolsheviks really thought the German up until 1914 uh, thought it was the greatest, and uh, uh, and the, okay, so so that's a mild criticism that that they didn't understand and. But it was just something that uh, uh, that that you would be aware of. However, that issue, whether the Russian Bolsheviks did or did not understand uh, the nature of the Democ of the Bolshevik, is turns out to be rather fraught in Soviet and Stalin era historiography, because at a certain point, 1930, 31, 32, something like that. Uh, there was a his, there was an article by Soviet historians, and it wasn't anything exceptional, but it pointed out this fact that the, that they were that these guys that Lenin at at all the Bolsheviks were uh, were slow in understanding the and and that even that the German left, a la Zetkin and uh, and maybe Rosa Luxemburg and Parvis had understood this faster, and this was heresy from Stalin's point of view, and he, and he wrote a famous letter uh saying only archive rats would uh, would uh, come up with facts like this and uh, uh i sort of uh, feel like i'm, I'm a patented and i wear a little badge archive rat but uh uh and that was like a hist that's sort of the beginning of the real stalinist clampdown 
uh, in historiography, especially of the party. So, uh, so that comment by Clara Zetkin that uh, that came to mind when you were talking about Lenin cult <clears throat> it turns out to be sort of something of a of a of a signpost toward a, toward an ironic ironic uh, ending to it. Um, so, uh, and then I, one thing that struck me when I read it uh, was the bitterness of, toward Karl Kautsky personally. It runs through like it's like, like it, she, she seems more angry at Kautsky personally and contemptuous than, 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 than Parvis. Uh, and, uh, and I don't have the biographical facts really about either one of them uh, to tell about this. But I will add one fact that I know of. In 1909, 1910, uh, Kautsky published The Road to Power, which Lenin and his buddies uh, thought that was the last true Kautsky, Kautsky when he was a Marxist work. But there were, there were both folks were unaware of the fact that there was a big to-do uh, in within the Russian party, uh, in the German party about publication, about whether uh, the party would allow it, uh, give it the, its own official uh, seal of approval and put it on the party publication and whether that they were afraid they said about legal, legal, uh, uh, you know, whether they were vulnerable to legal challenge and, you know, Kautsky or one of these guys might go to jail for, for publishing things that it was seen as, as seditious. So, uh, so there was a, in, behind the curtains, there was much letter writing and this and that and Kautsky and Clara was, was, Carl Kautsky's champion really in this but in the end he accepted sort of a compromise you can you can judge whether you think it's good or bad or acceptable or not acceptable but Clara Zetkin I just I the, the letters are in uh, the English edition the the current one there's an older one but there's a current one that came out in the 90s uh, I guess that's current <laughs> by these standards of these translations and uh has these letters and the French translation also has letters. Uh, and she just says, you, if you call that a, a comp acceptable compromise and you know, she felt that she had gone out on her limb and, and let her, so she, so I knew that she was very angry with him personally as a fighter at, at that point. So it sounded to me when I read this, that that was, and did you notice Ben, when you were reading <laughs> and uh, any of you read it, uh, a certain sort of, I don't know what to call it, but uh, imagery of, uh, you know, uh, of, of sexual masculinity, you know, like be a man or don't be a castrato. I felt like she was sort of saying, you know, uh, Parvis had balls and, 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 and Kautsky needed to get a pair, you know. So there was that image. I don't know, again, here's a fact I don't exactly know what to do with, but I did notice it when I read it. Uh, and then I will say that uh, I, I told Ben about this already that in my big book about what is to be done, I have uh, a long summary of a very similar article written by Parvis. It, uh, it, it's a different article, uh, but written about the same time and written for the Russian uh, people. Uh, and it was a review of uh, a book by a Russian, Prokopovich, on, on German social democracy, which was, in my opinion, a sort of like revisionism that really did its homework and and was willing to say what it say. I, it's it kind of I feel that it might be a good worth translating at some point. But any event, of course, it was anathema to uh, the um, 
to to the Iskra and, and Lenin and uh, Martov and all the Iskra people. So uh, Iskra, so uh, so he wrote a review, which which I thought was one of the best uh, expositions of the air, what I call in that book air fortianism, the sort of general philosophy of the uh, of behind the party. And as I, I I in reading Ben's this new thing that Ben just did. I, I do think he was one of the best uh, spokesmen for that. Uh, the question I ask in my mind, uh, Ben brought it up, is whether how original he was or whether he's, and I think his originality is more in his tone and more in his uh, ability to, to say, you know, to flat out and to aggressive and, but I'm not, and, and to all the, all the you know, outstanding use of the statistics and you know like like you say he's a very good journalist but uh but he uh but i don't know whether that he, the basic framework that he was putting forth i think was 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 standard uh pretty much but i i it's always hard to tell because uh, uh you know he had so much flash and vigor and uh, energy as uh, as a writer Okay, I'm going to say just one more thing before. Yeah, I just uh, um, also I Parvis. I, I should say that his essays in the Dying Gaido book about permanent revolutions uh, are very interesting. What he says and what he doesn't say, and trying to get into what his frame of mind is there. But uh, and I agree with the, those who say, and the, and the Trotsky is like one of them that he and Trotsky were not saying the same thing in 1905. I'll just throw that out. But Trotsky said it. And I. Other people have said it. I, I can't remember if the Zeman book said it, uh, but it seemed to me that that is the case. Uh, okay, so on page nine, I've got it. Let's see if I can find page nine. Find this quote. Uh, I, I'm going to read one quote. I thought was this is a more of a of some of a of a something that needs about. So Ben mentioned that uh, that that the overlap between what I'm doing now and and this and what he's talking about is I, I wrote an essay about how should we think of the of the um, of the Second International and how people back then thought of it and um, uh, I pointed out that uh, there was a sort of wonderful polemic between Lenin in 1914 after the war started and a guy on the very right hand wing of the uh, Russian social democracy, a guy named Potresov. And what what that, uh, why it was fascinating was Potresov said, the whole Second International was his opportunist and has been for a long time. We, we were just finding this out. And Lenin reacted very strongly against that and said, no, there, it's not, there's, there, there, there's a fight between uh, revolutionary social democracy, which which is the label they give the left wing and the and opportunism. And I'm sure that he was influenced in this uh, view of things now that I've read this and looked at it by Parvis's articles, you know, which he I'm sure he read with great glee back when they were published. Um, uh, and the irony of this particular debate is it's it's Lenin who it's it's the, the right wing socialist who now who defended the view which is now dominant in in left wing circles, namely that the Second International is just opportunist, tout court, just that, that's it. That's all you have to say about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, but then we have the question of uh, how should we think about the Second International? I mean, you don't have to go Lenin's way. You don't have to go. Uh, 
And there's a book that I wish I just got it in the mail, but it's downstairs, so I won't I can't wave it in front of you. But it's called Under the Socialist Banner. It just came out, and it's a collection of the resolutions of the uh, of the Second International. The editor is Mike Tabor. It's in Haymarket. And really, for if you're all interested in the Second International, you got to read this book. Uh, it's just really, uh, and I, I was I wasn't expecting it to be as good as it was. Be, I mean, as interesting as it was, I'm sure it'd be uh, you know, excellent editing and everything. Because I thought, oh, a bunch of resolutions. That's what it is. It's a book of it's a book of the resolutions passed at the international congresses, and uh, uh, I thought, okay, well, yeah, sure. But actually, they're they're hard hitting. They're insightful. They state the position carefully, and so I think that uh, this is going to be a landmark book in trying to think about it because you can say either. You can maybe you will read it and say, "Oh, what they said in their resolutions was bad, was was even there." You can see opportunism. That'd be a hard case to make, I think. Uh, but then you say, "Well, what does it mean that they they just passed resolutions, but in the reality was different?" That's probably maybe Ben would would you go along with that or something like that? We can discuss it. Mm -hmm. But uh, but so so how do how do we think about uh, what happened to the Second International? And uh, one thing I think is clear is that you should think of it as dynamic. We should think of it as things happening over a process. We should think of it. Uh, I have an allergy to the phrase Marxism of the Second International because I, I agree with Lenin on this. There wasn't, uh, there was a division. There was the people who, who wrote these resolutions and that was very hard hitting Marxism. And then there was opportunism. Anyway, I've been trying. So I've been getting to a sentence in this uh, that I thought struck me, and I will now read it, and then I'll and then I'll, and then I'll say, uh, ask, wonder what other people want to say, want to say about this. It's on the top of page nine of Ben's translation, and uh, here's what um, uh, uh, Clara Zetkin is saying. Uh, Parvis viewed this activity, i.e., fighting. Uh, no, sorry, the activity of opportunism, of you know, reformism and so forth, and the reformist parliamentaries that came with it, as quote, conspicuous little stones in the mosaic of the German's workers' movement, as typical individual phenomena of the advancing process of bourgeoisification, which had to be clearly, consciously, and energetically prevented. But how do you prevent something like that? I mean, isn't it sort of, uh, it, you know, her imagery of this sort of brings up sort of a huge process. It's like a, it's like a tide coming in. It's sort of, it's gonna, you know, it's it's bigger than bigger than Parvis and bigger than, so it, it's almost like Parvis becomes a, the image is almost like King Canute, is that the guy who stood at the waves and said, "Stop, stop!" You know, he's. He, is there anything more? that they could have done except sort of come, you know, yell and scream, but just the fact that this was happening and couldn't stop and couldn't be stopped, maybe that should be more than just something that you wring your hands about or, or moralize about or feel indignant about it. Maybe you should realize that it shows that there's something wrong with your, your view of things, that this is happening, that, uh, that, you know, so, and uh, generally I found that, this article is very good for giving a uh, Claire Zetkin, very good for showing how how the people in the in, who were involved with it saw it happening, but also they, she's very moralistic and uh, you know so very you know, all this language betrayal and uh, they're castrados and they're you know uh, so 
so I think that it's also you see the way that that the left was just not uh, being self-critical, maybe about some of its views about uh, about what you know the, they they were they were strongly like the Russian comrades. They were strongly committed to seeing the that socialism was going to join up with the workers' movement, i.e., that the socialism of of the revolutionaries and the and the militancy of the trade union people were going to come together and merger you know that was the great formula and it just wasn't happening so maybe something something was wrong with the belief that it was going to happen so i've run on long enough so uh thanks for listening and uh, uh you can see this is I, i've got a long list of other things to say but uh, i'm cutting myself off at this point no worries. thank you thank you very much Les. um anybody else to respond to that or to any any other thoughts on what you thought about the the the, the text and we just throw obviously there's you know there's some very small issues here like the the, the process of decay of the second international the how you define <laughs> it you know how, how you locate the change um but yeah i'll open it up and um please hey, feel could i could i say something of course you can um okay so all right okay so if anything happens, there's two dogs behind me fighting over a bone. <laughs> anyway, that's, an, so. that, that's an image of something or other here, but I don't know. I know, I know, I know, <laughs> but it is actually really happening. Okay. Anyway, at the moment, it's more like it's 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 the time before the, the big battle. Um, so, yeah, I thought that um, what you said was really interesting, Lars, in terms of Zetkin's attitude and it seemed to me like where, so I've been lucky enough, as I think you have too, to have uh, read um, the book that Mike Davis, Mike, Mike Tabor has now produced um, as he sent it to me to do a blurb on it. And hopefully I'm going to get the hard copy at some stage. Um, so I've read that. And then also they sent to me the copy of the Communist Women's Movement first for Congresses some time ago, which is unfortunately still not published. Anyway, what I was thinking like was about the fact that at the first four Congresses of the Communist Women's Movement, the way they spoke about the Second International was in a very condemnatory way. And it was like it was bound to fail. And I get that feeling from what Zetkin is saying here is that the, the problems with the international, second international began when, it, now maybe she was right, but they seems as, as soon as they became successful, then the problems also started. And um, so like that, the rot had already set in at an early stage. And then you have this depiction of people who, you know, the leading kind of contenders, either being ferocious in battle or, or compromising and overly compromising. But when you read the resolutions um, in the in Mike's book, you see a far more complex situation. And it seems to me that you see something that's happening in, in real time and that they're trying to come to terms with real issues. Like you haven't mentioned this and, and I don't know anybody else whether was particularly interested in it, but I know that Ben did translate a piece before on migration and the attitude of the Second International, and I found it really fascinating. I found it very fascinating how they how developed their ideas were and how to organise workers who were migrating to the United States, um, how dedicated they were to workers' unity, and how innovative they were. So, like, obviously, that's not one of the big debates that we're looking at today, but 
it certainly is an, it certainly is a debate that I think we should look at. But I suppose the only point that I really wanted to make is that it's like I said it to Mike, I think, when he gave a talk uh, at one of the communist forums about how they spoke the communist women's movement and in the Genotel as well, how communistka, how they spoke about the Second International was like, well, you know, that's just, it was just not like a waste of time, but it really was pretty opportunist, pretty manky from a very early start. And then Lenin kind of led the way forward and we all followed him. Now we know, now we know like everything that's true, it seemed to be kind of, I don't know whether it's teleological is the right way to describe it, but anyway, a kind of a road to Damascus type of experience. Um, so I thought that that was really interesting. And I think that you're right. I think his book is really valuable. I think that, um, like, I don't know at all very much really about Parvis. Um, and I think, to be fair, I think he does come out, despite her, like, you're right, despite her moralism and her kind of, oh, I don't know, um, I suppose, kind of determination to depict things a certain way um, because of where she was at, I would say. she Was li was she living in Soviet Union at that stage or was she, when well, she was very closely connected, um, that she, despite all of that, I think she does, you see through her words, like, a, like a, an extremely energetic individual who had... Um, who had a very, I suppose, you know, who, who had enormous talent um, and who brought that talent to Germany and who seems to have not fared well, really, in the process that he was rejected by them. But perhaps I'm wrong. That seems that he didn't fare well until he, he, kind of, he, he seems to have retreated um, at some stage. I can't remember where exactly. Um, but... Um, yeah, so really, I suppose that that's all I wanted to say is that I think it's portrayed in a certain way. It's almost kind of like, it feels to me sometimes as though that there'd been a decision made. Let's let's talk about the Second International in these terms. Um, let's put forward that it's, you know, no longer, you know, no longer anything to learn from. Um, and to kind of present it in a very simplistic way. Um, because, I don't know, I mean, obviously they were dealing with it in that way because of the historical time they were living through and the need that they felt to um, like defeat the ideas of opportunism. Just one last point as well is that um, when like she's talking about the battle for opportunism in the Second International, like the Second International was comprised of trade unions and other political organisations that were very, that were not Marxist parties. So isn't it inevitable then that there are going to be, you know, right-wing views? Because they're, they're not all Marxist parties. They're not all meant to be Marxist parties. They're, they're meant to be like trade unions. Are they, um, who are they? What's, I've, I've forgotten their names. The, the Fabians. Were the Fabians in there? I think, you know, these types were in there. They were, in, they were all in there because I understood that they wanted as much unity as possible within the socialist movement. So... It was kind of like there wasn't a requirement that you there wasn't a requirement that you had to be a Marxist to join, as far as I understand. But they fought for Marxism within it, and Marxism, at least in the resolutions, was very dominant within it. So 
anyway, I'm just kind of wandering off now. So I'll stop. <laughs> anyway, thanks. I'll, I'll say something, Ben, if you look. Can't hear you, Ben. Oh. Hello, can you hear me now? Go, go, yeah, go. Yeah, I can, yeah. Speak. <laughs> I'm just saying you can. You should speak. All right. Um, <laughs> on the Parvus thing, on, on, on the kind of subsequent kind of treatment of Parvus, if um, I was looking in that, uh, there was that book that came out a few years ago about the, uh, the literary debate where the debate over um, <clears throat> Trotsky's Lessons of October uh, that took... <laughs> That took real place. Mis real misnomer. Literary debate it had nothing to do with literary. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't very. Yeah, it wasn't very literate. Yeah, or, uh, yeah, there wasn't very many novels quoted in it from no. uh, when I when, when I read it. But um, Parvus does crop up in that a lot, actually. Um, well, he, he, he kind of crops up as a kind of sub thing because basically what the <clears throat> what the, the uh, you know I suppose what I, you know the Stalin kind of Zinoviev Kamenev wing what they. They 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 did introduce Trotsky for for um for his ideas of permanent revolution being a kind of um creation of Parvus, but it went much farther as it as it went down into the kind of um the kind of shall we say less sophisticated commentator commentator kind of operatives like Bella Kuhn, Bella Kuhn for example criticised um Trotsky for um his ideas on the trade union debate in the uh, Soviet Union nineteen. 20 to 21 Kuhn actually said that um Trotsky's views on trade unions were also taken from Parvus and it was all it was part of this whole kind of stream to say that Trotsky wasn't original that he just stole things and it was an eclectic and he pulled things from here and there so Parvus does function in that debate as so clearly by that 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 point there's 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 not very much I didn't find very much objectivity about kind of a kind of uh, you know, Parvus at all. There's this kind of no. He's just like a, a he's just Trotsky's kind of ringmaster. So I can see why. You know, I can see why. I can see what that's that's another strand of Parvus just being completely like you know cemented under the earth and kind of forgotten about as um you know as you know as a a, a pretty good writer as other people have said. So I won't elaborate on that. On the um on the thing about uh uh. You know the uh, the kind of broader thing about the second international and last kind of raised that thing up about what how do you view these resolutions? Were they kind of inoperative? Well, I've actually followed through a few of those in the last couple of days because uh, um, at the British Library, I got I got the there was a party in the second international called the British Socialist Party who were. Uh, uh, um, uh, um, who, who later became part of the CPGB, the Communist Party of Great Britain, and um, what I found is so. So if you look in the, the the under the Socialist Banner books, you find two resolutions on party unity. One way back in 1904, which was the which was the seemed to be the kingpin resolution that they referred to a lot back, but it was also the Copenhagen one. There was they were on party unity, and they were making the point kind of fairly obvious point from the experience of German, French and Belgian social democracy about the power of bringing organisations to, uh, together and the impact that that has on both on those organisations themselves and on the wider movement. So you could say, well, that, that you know, that's that's apple pie and kind of motherhood. But when I actually looked in justice, when I actually looked in some kind of old Labour Party kind of papers of the time, um, the Socialist International and the 
International Socialist Bureau was still like pushing this really hard, like at the the British Socialist Party in 1913 and 1914. And um, there was a there was a massive open debate in the in the pages of Justice about about the, the the Socialist International's instructions at the BSP. They told the BSP, the British Socialist Party, that it must join, it must unite with the Independent Labour Party, and it must become affiliated to the Labour Party. That you know, the, the the bigger kind of Labour Party, the ILP, the Independent Labour Party, was just another uh, uh, affiliate of the of the Labour Party. So, so it's a really interesting debate. But the but the most interesting thing, I suppose, for this debate is 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 the 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 you know the the Second International were kind of throwing a lot of this. The Van der Vaud and Heismans came over to uh, uh, England to talk to all the comrades and they had meetings and also they let themselves be interviewed in the socialist press and and they told a pretty pretty familiar story that we'd all be familiar with about why you should be in a united organization that, that sort of thing so um but where where i think it, so okay so that's that's a positive kind of thing i think where it kind of falls down because we're talking quite late now 13 and 14 I can see the type of unity they're pushing for is quite a, like a marshy kind of like Heisman's talk to the English, uh, the British comrades about, um, well, if you're all united in one organisation, the extremists will be balanced out by the opportunist and they'll just be, uh, you know, and so therefore the average, the the, the kind of moderates and the, the more sensible people will be able to take over. So, so it's quite interesting, but, but those, 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 those resolutions, those kind of fine words on party, unity they weren't inoperable they were still being pushed right up towards the end of the first world and i think the bsp ended up joining the affiliated to the labor party in 1916 obviously when 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 things had changed quite a lot in the world and in in, in, in the second international so i don't so in terms of that kind of that kind of bigger that, that kind of bigger debate about the those resolutions because um uh you know if you you know, uh, that would be a very, very common criticism from Trotskyists. They would just say, well, there's all these wonderful resolutions and they, and they but they talk about poor motherhood, and, but they're not real. They don't resolve anything. But that's that's actually not that's actually not that's actually not the case. And they were still they were still fighting for elements of kind of principled kind of um uh, politics, uh, you know, right up until like you know the fall, if, if you might, as you might call that, in, in 1914. But um, uh, um, uh, Zetkin, um, uh, Zetkin, I, I said this to Ben actually, I, I, and it's just a small point on the the last piece that the Zetkin wrote about Parvis and Parvis's fall. I found it quite kind of sad actually. It was it, it was very kind of sad, and it was. It was quite an, it was a very effective piece of like um, writing on her part, I think, because she, you know, the way that she brings up that meeting at the end where like Parvis turns up to meet them all and she basically kind of, uh, you know, uh, illustrates this kind of rather pathetic character, like, you know, this hubristic kind of character who just turns up and who's like a you know, it's just like the unwanted guest at the party kind of thing. That I think that was a very, I think that was a very, you know, impressive. But I, I did wonder how that 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 did strike me with with Zetkin as that was almost like a literary kind of scene. You, that was almost like something that was like something out of a novel. And um, but I think she, I think that shows she's a very good kind of good writer. But I kind of, 
you kind of wonder about those things because that's that's a very dramatic scene and it's a you know it's a very um, black and white kind of thing you do kind of wonder about whether I, if, if i was like putting a hunch on it i would guess that given like parvis is you know given that he was a kind of uh you know a pusher as people have called it and he he knew people and he was useful and he as far as i remember wasn't he one of the ones that helped lenin the seal train kind of deal was he involved in that no, no he, he wasn't he, he he made uh he made he, he was involved but they didn't want anything to do with him Okay, but I mean, I would be I would be very uh, very surprised. Yes, they didn't want to have anything to do with him, but I would be surprised if the Soviet uh, Soviet diplomacy or the Soviet Secret Service hadn't kept some kind of contact with Parvus simply because he knew people. Whereas in Zetka's thing, I could be this. That's pure conjecture on my part. I don't know whether that's true, but it just strikes me that. Um, you know, Soviet diplomacy, even in the years directly after the revolution, was nothing if not pragmatic. It was run by some like very kind of pragmatic individuals. It does, whereas Zetkin's thing about there's this final kind of party where, you know, and it's by, you know, and it's that, uh, that, that struck me as like a useful literary device, but I did wonder how truthful that was. That's it. Very much. Any, anybody else? Otherwise, I'll, I'll come back. Anybody else? Uh, I wanted to say something about the yeah. party since you brought a party scene. The party yeah. scene, um, yes, that was a very effective scene. But and actually, uh, Zetkin did allow Parvis his his voice a little bit. He he uh, uh, um, he what was it? He said, "Ben, uh, you are dogmatic paper pushers or something like this." So so presumably uh, that had some connection to what Parvis's point of view. Uh, and uh, but what is what uh, the story also told me the fact that he showed up the fact that he was that he himself from looking from inside did not see himself as the great fall did not see himself and he she reported that other little fact about uh, I'll, I'll go back to I'll go back to Russia and let them judge me and you know uh, so he felt from within that he had he it was not he who had fallen but they. And uh, so she doesn't really understand, or anyway, have, doesn't have a theory about what happened to him exactly. That that part of the uh, that part of the thing is 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 not not you know it's it's it, she goes over it. She, it repels her. She can't stand it. So she hasn't said much about it. But so um, so it is a little bit of a mystery as to what happened to him. But from his point of view, he was he he was the one who was staying on the same path. So I, I, I was trying to figure out how could do that. I had one idea uh, where we could see the early Parvis and the late Parvis as something of a con continuity, and that was you call anti-bourgeois, anti-bourgeois, and not anti-bourgeois in the sense of guys exploiting other people, but anti-bourgeois and in the other sense of bourgeois, of petty bourgeois, petty routine, uh, you know. Uh, get up and go to your office nine to five uh safe and sane legal uh that sort of thing and uh so in the beginning he's against these these uh bureaucrat the sort of bureaucrats of the movement and in the end he's against he he's he he also may think of himself i'm i'm not bound by of course he was being super bourgeois in the, in the sense of being a wheeler dealer pusher or so forth but on the other hand he's being an adventurer he's going to Constantinople. He was doing this, doing these, thinking big. He was. He had these plans for, uh, for uh, starting a revolution in Russia and everything. He was trying to get the 
anyway, uh, so he was still thinking big. He was still not accepting the ordinary. So it's just an idea. And there might, there might be other people in the socialist movement whose real motivation was less uh, let's get the workers and let's get socialism and more uh, let's let's you know let's be revolutionary. Let's be out stand outside the common order. Let's even let's be violent. Let's be uh, so forth and so on. And, and you can all I imagine we can think of names like. Uh, uh, various people on the left. Well, Mussolini is a good example, uh, who 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 became uh, anti-bourgeois but but very right-wing. So. I think um, it's a shame, in in a sense, that Mike McNair's not here because one of the things I think that when we Mike and I did this project on Parvis's uh, journal Die Glocke, which is what he the the, oh, the, the Huckster Parvis. What one thing you can see a certain continuity in, and this is where I think that the those on the left of social democracy, such as Etkin Luxembourg, had problems with, is his theory of imperialism. So, for example, he is of the he comes of the school uh, around Luxembourg and Zetkin and Lynch and other Lynch also goes to the right uh, in in 1914 with, with Parvus, that they see imperialism, I think, correctly. Um, as inevitable. So war is an inevitable feature of the world in which we're, we're moving, right? Um, but the as a result of that position, so you can see a certain continuity and Parviswell says, well, this is inevitable, it's happening. What can I do to make, make the most of it? Now it's a real thing and class solidarity has collapsed. 1914, you know, the policies of the second international, et cetera, that's all kind of a pipe dream now. What we need to do is, is move on the, the pieces on the chessboard to get revolution in Russia. So I don't think it's a, so I think you can see certain continuities in, in his ideas as well. And he's obviously motivated um, throughout his life by an absolute hatred of Tsarism. And he basically makes the case in 1914 that, um, you know, <laughs> Britain is not a uh, progressive power because it's allied with the Tsar. Uh, and moreover, it's the world uh, uh, top dog in terms of the, the imperialist order. It must fall if something better is to emerge. He said, you know, even then makes the comparison between the German workers movement, advanced political uh, mass organizations, et cetera, versus the, the, you know, the penny pinching laborism of the Brits, right? And he says, that's, that's not an accident. It's a reflection of Britain's dominance of its own workforce and the, the, the global workforce. So it, it becomes a bizarre argument, but I'll, I'll dig up the material that we, we did and there are certain continuities in his theory of imperialism, for example, um, that, you can, that you can see with Parvis and he then say draws, draws uh, different uh, connections uh, and different conclusions and, and where, he, where he goes as a result of that. Um, just on, on the SEAL train thing, um, I, I'm under the impression that Parvis did play more of a uh, of a central role, only because it's because it, just from reading the Zema book, obviously the Zema and Charlotte book, we have to be very careful because it is that kind of Lenin is the source of all evil. Trotsky was you know insightful and 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 clever, uh, so was Parvis. But Lenin, you know, he was dogmatic. He didn't want to listen to anyone. He always wanted things his own way. You know the kind of usual stuff. Um, but they they make the case quite closely, and again, I'm I'm no expert to you know on the, on these matters. They say that Parvis, one of the things Parvis did was these research centres uh, and and centres for, for for research, which kind of functioned as as um, uh, kind of go betweens for connections between governments, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, right, and the, he approached Lenin on a number of occasions, say Zeman and Charlo. Um, 
about working together and cooperating and Lenin, partly for his own for, uh, fears of his own safety, right? And, and not having to travel through Germany being associated with Parvis, et cetera, et cetera, is very much keeps a, keeps a, a safe distance. But nonetheless, one of Lenin's allies, and I don't have it here to uh, now, uh, close allies at the time, goes off and works in this institute. And they argue, Simon and Charlotte, that this is kind of a Lenin keeping him at arm's length, but still kind of to see what he's doing and whether he can be of assistance, et cetera. Because Lenin's clear, this guy is an absolute renegade. He, you know, he, he wants absolutely nothing to do with him. He doesn't want to be associated with him, et cetera. But obviously, as, 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 as uh, um, Lawrence said, there, you know, Parvis does, he does pull wires. He does have connections, et cetera. Um, and you know that's that's ex extensively detailed in the uh, in the book where you know and again he also has influence in Russia. So one of the one of the strange things is that he's doing these deals with German counts in the in the Foreign Office, right, and saying there'll be a there'll be a, a general strike or there'll be a, there'll be a wide strike movement in Petrograd on and he names the date and I think it's January the sixth because it's the anniversary of uh, Bloody Sunday, right? Um, in, in Russia, he said that's going to be the day, and he, you know he's got all these people on the ground, and they they, they do organise a big strike. It doesn't come to anything in the end, and the Germans then go, okay, maybe we can't trust this guy. Um, but it's, it's it's a remarkable life, in that sense, a remarkable man. You know the the, the connections he he has, etc. Um, so yeah, that's just that's just on the whole sealed sealed train thing. I think it's it, again, it's it's a, it's a little bit of detective, archival rap work to kind of bring that out. But I you know. I, I, well, uh, another aspect is yeah. he might have been uh, influential on the, to some extent. On the other side, getting the Germans, getting any of the Germans to see this as, a, as something, so they go to him and say, "Who is this guy, Lenin? And should we, should we? Is it to our advantage to shoot him in?" And he says, "Sure, sure, sure, yeah." So, uh, exactly. but um, I, I'm going to have to go and go look. Mm -hmm. I, my impression was that he really didn't have anything to do with the. Uh, with with the people deciding to go that way, and it was, mm -hmm. it was based on other other things. I, I think that's probably right. And often, you know, I read a book um, not too long ago, and I can't remember the author or the name, but it was a, it was a brief account of the sealed train uh, journey um, by a, a female historian. I can't I say it's a few years ago. Catherine Meridale. Catherine Meridale, and and often the insinuation is there that basically, I mean, I'm 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 probably doing injustice to her account, but basically the Germans. Uh, you know, ran Lenin, and you know it was the whole like the Germans basically were responsible for the for the Russian Revolution because Lenin is that kind of person. He's so ruthless. It, it, maybe maybe that's slightly unfair, but it is it, that's the, the impression I got at the time. Uh, yeah, I didn't want to read the book for that reason, but yeah, so I had a lot of day. But but we should always remember talking about the sealed train that Martov and a bunch of, and all the others came yeah. a few weeks later by the same method. Yeah, uh, some were even earlier, weren't they? I think Martov was even earlier than then. Is that right? No, or was no, it? no, no, no. Was later. was the first. Then was, was the first. And, and actually, uh, one of the things you had uh, uh, to understand Lenin's impact when he came back was he was the first of the of the real top leaders to return. Okay. Uh, and uh, the and and as someone pointed out all the leaders who came back were to the left of their party. I mean, were more militant than their party. Martov uh, and Chernoff the as social revolutionary mm -hmm. so uh so so lenin got an extreme amount of publicity and one of the things that i'm going off on my one of my topics no, no. yeah right <laughs> is that uh is that for the first time the bolsheviks were, were became known to the wider russian public because everyone made such a big deal of them the press and one of the reasons why the 
April theses. I'm sort of a revisionist views on the April theses, but one of the reasons why it made that, uh, the, such a splash was because he was the first one back, and and all of a sudden the bourgeois papers discovered the Bolsheviks and what the and what how awful they were, and and for two or three weeks or after that there was like people thought is I don't know it's like people thought that Lenin was something like QAnon or something. It was a hear this complete you know. Uh, crazy uh insurrectionists are coming back and it took a week it took a while for everything things to i mean they still thought he was a german agent from the get-go but just maybe so on some of the because obviously we're covering a lot of ground but i thought it'd be useful so just in terms of the uh some of the points that lars was making about um maybe zetkin's you know highly emotional emotionalized um kind of account of this and and maybe moralizing account at, at times i do think that someone like parvis does for the reasons i've outlined that you know many of the the people on the far left of the party actually went i mean far worse than kautsky and borgfried and you know with with certain limitations but really went gung ho germany must win the war right this is the most important question of our age um i think there is that that question of Zetkin's own past a little bit because I say she was very close with Parvis. Obviously, thought a lot of him, and I think as I think uh, um, either uh, Lyndon Rand said it that does come across in the in 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 the, the, the work as well is that you know she has, she has respect for his for his revolutionary writings and as you say contrast them favorably to someone like Kautsky and he does have a very different style to Kautsky and Kautsky is the you know the objective you know the, the point one point two was parvis is just you know throwing all, all sorts of words around and metaphors and you know and and yeah, say it, it's it's a good read but i think so there is that kind of identity question for zetkin herself you know in terms of what went wrong you know, what, what was the answer could we have prevented this um on, on Anne's points i think um the we've, we've spoken about this before and but i think in terms of the because the other context it's not just the cult of lenin uh, what's happened in russia it's also you know as, as we've discussed before it's the the fact that the second international is becoming a thing again it's regrouping it's becoming a key player in the um the, the post-world war one order to put to, in in that sense right and carry, carries on subsequently there is there is a live debate going on between these things you know about where workers should ally themselves whether you know with, which trade, trade union federations they should join etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think that can that must surely account for the vitriol and the uh the, the, the kind of fierce nature of the debates and the, the rhetoric of people like zetkin and others in 21 but I do think, and while I've quoted, I quoted Zetkin um, extensively before in writing about Kautsky. And one of the things she says about Kautsky is that, um, you know, he was he was the the great. She says he was the great uh, founder of of of, of political uh, uh, Marxism within the SPD, uh, the foundation, blah 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 blah. But that makes his fall from grace all the more inexcusable. She writes, which for me, yes, that makes sense. That's that's the, you know, broadly what I would say. That's certainly Lenin's position. Um, but I think sometimes in these discussions, uh, and you get a little bit, it, it's a little bit in the, in the subtext here, as you say, with the odd uh, jibe about, you know, the, 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 the people uh, falling asleep when these things, only Parva sees them, etc. Um, you do get a bit of baby in bathwater situation, and you do start to get this again in Zetkin as well, is the, the Second International had all these great resolutions, but it didn't do anything about it. And I, I just think, you know, 
there may be an element of truth to that, but you think about, as, as the comment said, what the second international was, how influential it was, all of its organizations, you know, the, the, these resolutions wouldn't just be standing up in, in, in thin air. They were, they were taken to party policy reflected in programs, reflected in resolutions um, and, and party activity on the ground. So I don't think that the argument really adds up. And, and moreover, I think it's partly that argument has had a certain purchase on the left uh, and continues clearly to have purchase on the left, partly in the absence of a real um, engagement with these, with these parties on the ground that's free from the kind of ideological baggage of the 20th century. And, you know, I'll make the point about um, it just as I, I, you know, about the, the stuff I'm doing on Die Gleichheit now is reading um, Lisa Fogel's book uh, and uh, Marxism and women's uh, liberation towards a unity theory. It's a, it's a kind of classic of second wave feminism, I think 78, maybe late 70s. And this is a chapter on the Second International. And I think, oh, okay, so I'll, I'll have a look through that. Um, but, you know, interesting. But uh, so they mentioned Babel. She mentions Babel. She mentions Engels. She mentions some other people. But that's it. There's no. There's not one reference to Clara Zetkin's Women's Journal. Right. So you've got this, you know, this huge movement that's led by Zetkin and others, which isn't just limited to Germany. As I say, it's got it's got uh, um, affiliate affiliate organisations, the Second International, all around at least Europe, big in Russia, etc. Organises these mass demonstrations on Women's Day. Blah 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 blah. But, you know, that's we, we're still seeing a lot of the this experience through, you know, the, the, the great the great works, et cetera, et cetera, rather than actually what were people doing on the ground? What how were they organizing? What were the how do you know, how do these resolutions fit into local reports of women's? So I think there, there is that that can partly account for this um, situation, I think, in terms of the um, uh, the second international, you know, we have thrown the, a lot of the good out. Uh, with you know obviously some of the the, the problems that that, uh, that have been inherited from that from that experience, um, so yeah. But obviously these these are these are huge huge questions. I think one of the things that you're developing, Lars, is that this you know we shouldn't see the second international party model even from the the question of the party unity resolutions etc. as something static. It's it's a constantly uh, uh, fought over process. It's dynamic. It's contingent. It's it, you know, it takes it takes different forms in different countries. I think that's brought and you know, and I think that's really where we kind of have to start thinking about these 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 questions and, and seeing what were a lot of these debates about um, on that level. I think. Uh, yeah, but can I, I, I wanted to first thank uh, Lyndon uh, for talking about that uh, that that thing about the unity going on processes going on in England. That's very interesting to me because they were also doing the in, trying to do this in Russia uh, at the very same time, Prague conference and uh, so forth. And they actually, um, they actually make um, Van der Waal and Huysmans, um actually make reference to uh, the kind of unity uh, yeah. situation, and they say we've we've made it work in France, we've made it work in Belgium, but we can't. We we, we Russia's. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, well, that's what I expect him to say. And also, I wanted to thank Anne for the, uh, what she reported on, on on the attitude of the. I guess it was the women's congresses that in the international. So, <clears throat> and actually, th so this discussion has made me realize something. And looking at the date, so if you want to get a good sense of where people get uh, their view of the second international. 
it's a book that was written in early 1924, March 24 or something like that. And it's Stalin's Foundations of Leninism. And you should all read it uh, for a number of reasons. I think in a funny way, uh, it's a good, pretty good um, uh, statement of Lenin's views, but, but he, uh, he makes Lenin the great theorist who thought these ideas up for the first, he's the guy who thought them up, when actually they're all in the resolutions, they're all in Kautsky, not all, but just about. And uh, so, so, and if you look at that book, uh, it, it's Lenin versus the Second International. It structures the entire book from the first paragraph to the last. So, uh, so if you want to get an idea of where we all uh, get our view of the Second International that we grew up with, as it were, you should take a look at that book. It's easy. It's short, and you know. Uh, and then I realized that uh, that Claire Zetkin is not perhaps not consciously is still is still in back in what Lenin and Zinoviev and these people during the war were saying, namely that it's that it was it's not Lenin versus the Second International. In fact, Lenin probably had his had his uh, illusions about this, but uh, but it was a, a, a huge battle that was going on all the time. We lost it. Uh, uh, we lost the battle, but it was a huge battle, and it, and we knew what we were doing, and we knew what was going on at the time. Which uh, so so actually, uh, her thing is much closer to to what Lenin was saying, and and I doubt if she was aware of this or tended to do this. But it is a very different view of what was happening than than Stalin's uh, foundations. So you might almost at some point <laughs> put those two together as 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 uh, two different ways of looking at it. One way is the fight to the death, and the other way is that they were all a bunch of sluggards from the beginning, including Kautsky. So that's all. I, that's my finish. There's a little bit of that in Zetkin, isn't there? But again, it's not. It's not. In, 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 there's a little bit of that in Zetkin in terms of the Kautsky stuff, but it's in the subtext and it's not developed in the way that you know Stalin does it, etc. You know, this is this this kind of codified. Um, you know, view that, that's hard. And then obviously there were overlaps. There were possibly things where they could both nod along, uh, but it's not really on that. And again, I don't think Setkin ever does that in terms of, you know, Kautsky was from the start, uh, this, this, yeah. you know, that, that, that's not, the, there, there, are, there, are, there, are, there, are, there are aspects of, uh, of the, in the subtext. And I think sometimes justifiably, I think the whole thing with like right. Parvis articles, I mean, you know, it does, it does show a certain flaw well, in. Yeah, but Ben, it's, it's, it's sort of, uh the difference between Kautsky as a person whom you can so sort of say was cowardly or yeah. uh, uh, not a fighter and Kautsky the, the, the writer when, who, when he was going good and uh, Lenin made that distinction and I think it's in, implicit in, in uh, Claire. She knew Kautsky very yeah. personally and, and was mad at him personally but I don't see that there's actually much criticism in the book about anything he actually said when he got around to saying it. Like it's just it. that he was reluctant yeah. or you know made excuses and that sort of thing. No, I think I think that's absolutely right. So you you know you see the the the, the so you know it's always trying to these things are always moving, aren't they? So you're trying to kind of locate them and about you know in in the early twenties or the mid twenties and how how they unfold. Yeah. Just just on the contingency question as well, this is a point actually Mike Tabor made. I don't know if he makes it also in the in the introduction to his book because I, I it hasn't arrived with me yet. He has sent me one, but. Um, the uh, he makes the point and that that in terms of the you know you're talking about you don't have to be a Marxist 
uh, to be a member of the Second International, etc. But if if you look at the foundation of the Second International, there were there were two competing congresses. There was the explicitly Marxist one, which Engels was very much the kind of wire puller behind getting everything together, drawing together the forces that he thought would be the the the, 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 the best for a Marxist international. And then you have the what they call the possiblist led. Uh, um, conference, you know, maybe two streets down, I don't two streets, but not you know, a different district in Paris at the same time. And the, 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 the possiblest one is a real flop and it doesn't take off at all. So that they're, they're kind of then forced to co re reorganize their forces and come around the second international. And one of the things, you know, the usual, um, I, I can't remember the origins of it. And maybe, maybe someone will correct me. It could be Zinoviev um, with the, the whole idea of the second international as a post box. That, that's been handed down through us as well. I think it's an obvious originally in, in 1914 in the Switzerland writings. But anyway, it's become, you know, if you, if you talk to most leftists, they'll say, yeah, this is the problem of the Second International. It was a post box, right? So, you know, have all these beautifully written resolutions, but you post them off and, you know, th th that kind of story. And, um, and Mike Tabor made the point, maybe still arguing with that framework slightly, but correcting it, was saying, well, look, um, one of the reasons there wasn't a strong and coherent international centralized body from the start was that Engels was very much against it because he thought if we allow that at this point what's going to happen is the possiblists are going to swarm in and and, and rot the thing so even in, in even well before it's founded during its foundation and immediately after there is this the battle is ongoing. It's not like it, you know, you, it, it appears in with, with Falmar's speech in El Dorado, the, the El Dorado pub in Munich or whatever. It's, you know, it's a, it's a constant uh, battle and, and Marx and Engels have, have themselves had been through such a battle as well. So, it, you know, that, that, there's a good book here on um, the Sozialdemokrat, which was the leading, uh, uh, the, 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 the illegal newspaper of German social democracy smuggled into Germany. And there's just constant references to Marx and Engels, you know, uh, beating over uh, parliamentarians over the head for their reformism, for their opportunism. So, you know, there's something I think that we're missing generally about with this kind of highly um, abstract or uh, a reified view of the Second International. It's not something, it's not just something we're missing about history. It's miss something we miss about real life <laughs> and politics as, as, as an ongoing kind of battle over things. So that, that's, that, that would be the point I would make as well about the foundation that, that yeah, this is not just some kind of, you know, straight line forward process into 1914 that you know, it could have gone different ways, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, maybe the left wasn't in a position to 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 stop it and do something with it. Um, but, you know, that that's that was the nature of these things, I think. In that letterbox thing was an obvious at the um, Second Congress of the Comintern. Okay, uh, I think that I think that was it. But I can kind of see why that that idea is taken off if, because if you um, if you look at the um, if you look at the the kind of Trotskyist internationals, so-called internationals, the kind of oil slick internationals, well, they are post box because they can't do anything else, uh, you know, because it's that. Uh, so I can see why that's, you know, uh, I've I've been I was in Trotskyist organisations when I was a kid that had these used to get international bulletins, but that was fundamentally what it was. So they have become a post box, and it's it's kind of clear to me that looking at that. British Socialist Party debate that the, the Socialist Second International wasn't a post box. It was, you know, it was actually people coming over and making visits and saying, you know, you need to, you know, we need to address this. You know, we 
we passed this years ago. What, what, you know, why aren't, you know, what, what, what was happening kind of thing. So it, so it wasn't, so it's, was you know, that was very interventionist and that was kind of, that was kind of surprising to me, you know, cause I'd been probably had the same conceptions of it being a kind of letterbox that posted nice resolutions every few years. And, you know, but it's, just, uh, yeah. No, that, make, that makes a lot of sense to me. And again, just you, you just look at the size of these organisations as well. Sorry, Anne, do you want to come in? Oh yeah, I just look. look I I haven't got the exact. You know, there was a, a, the phraseology of what they ended up with in terms of principle of organisation, but there was certainly a debate went on because there was debate with the anarchists, and they were finally kicked out because they kept on being so disruptive. So. It was like, a, you know, it was a moving, dynamic debate. And certainly, I would say that it wasn't like they were saying, oh, we want room there for the laborers. We want room for it wasn't like trying to build it was trying to build a Marxist international. And, and you know, it was trying to like win it and lead it. But it was the working. I think myself that the unity of the working class was just so integral to it rather than necessarily an exact ideology. Maybe that's wrong, but perhaps that was a problem with it as well. It was like too loose, too accommodating. Um, but anyway, yeah, and on the, on the question of Zetkin's attitude towards the Second International, um, so I, obviously, like I agree with Lars, that her view and the view of others who were fighting at the time was very different to the view that was expounded by Stalin and, and those afterwards. But it's and it's only from my own reading in terms of communistica, really, that I've seen it. And, and from the, the communist women's movement, um, Lars, which is uh, which began, I think, 1920. Yeah, 1920, and was closed by Stalin in 1930. Anyway, at one stage, there was a debate on the legacy of the Second International Women's Movement. And some of the speakers were saying, well, you know, that's, uh, you know, that, that was meaningless, it was just a talking shop, it didn't do anything, it spoke fine words, but didn't actually do anything. And then it seemed to occur to them that, well, actually, Zetkin, she was leading figure in that and Colin Ty, she was a leading figure in that and particularly Zetkin because she's you know lauded by all the participants in the communist women's movement and they said oh well yes they kind of conceded and said well yes except for the struggle of Clara Z of comrades Zetkin so they have so even she was you know she wasn't particularly vocal on arguing her own you know heritage of you know, and those mass demonstrations, the things that they did, they weren't talked about. Um, and this is obviously 1920, 21, 22, they weren't spoken about. And so, I mean, obviously I, I do agree with you. This was done in the context of them fighting this organization. I absolutely agree with you, but it just shows you the dangers of accepting what historical figures say about about you know what's going on at the time, you know, just taking their word for it because it means that you 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 end up repeating something that at the time was you know necessary perhaps for them to say in order to 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 do battle with these elements. But for us today, 
it's such a, a problem because then we end up defending, you know what I mean? Not exploring, well, not defending, not exploring this rich history, but clearly obviously we're getting somewhere to, um, in terms of dealing with that, up to, you know, that, that basically, that, that lack of interest or that lack of research. Anyway, thanks. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> that's class. Yeah, I don't think that's the point, isn't it? It's, you know, trying to break with this, you know, this, this kind of uh, chain of transmission of ideas just from, you know, the, the greats and the stuff that's been translated and was, it's got the official stamp, etc. It's trying to understand, you know, the, 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 the debates themselves and see what they're about. I know on that level, I'm looking forward to um, actually translating not just uh, a sale, but I want to do some work on the um, on the, the German revisionists. So the, the band, and you know, again, we've got Bernstein often very, you know, uh, um, the way he's presented in terms of scholarship today is this great visionary, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Um, but what we don't, what we, what we don't have so much of is, is his journal, other people leading, uh, leading figures in, in and around the revisionist uh, movement. Um, so yeah, I'm looking to do some of their articles as well. And, uh, you know, to try and uh, to, to get that side of it. Cause we said, we've had a kind of weird, Thing. we had the revisionism thing uh, and that's that's still ongoing so i'm still working on the kautsky etc um but yeah now with a bit with this project i've got uh, coming up next year a bit more of a focus on uh, uh die and its contents which you know i say is, is a real i mean no one would have seen anything really from die Gleichheit, uh here um or beyond so it'd be useful to, it'll be you know fun to get on with that and and to uh uh, to have a look and I say the, the, the thing that, that was interesting for me was the focus on, on Russia in particular. Um, I did want to say something else. I've just forgotten what it was. Um, anyone else want to come in I, I, while I try and regather my thoughts? Um, come on, what is about now? Uh, is that good? I know Yeah, just, um, just on um, the question of Zetkin and Luxembourg in Luxembourg in 1909, 1910 as well, the, the, the way this is often portrayed, and again, Lars, you'll, 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 you'll remember this as well, because I sent you the, the Martov uh, translation and the um, Karski, what's his name, Marklevsky uh, translation on, on the mass strike. The way this, is, again, we, we inherit this stuff is that you know, Kautsky, okay, had some good stuff in paper, um, you know, wrote some nice Marxist theory, etc. but he actually provided a cover for the opportunist right. It's people like Zetkin and Luxembourg who see through him, which I think there is, there is a certain truth in that. They see, as you say, flaws in Kautsky's uh, accommodating sometimes. That wasn't the first time, by the way, where he had accepted revisions from the party leadership to some of his books, etc. Um, you know, that's just but by the by. But then, you know, as that, and then we get to 1910 and the mass strike question comes about and then centrist Marxism appears. It's not the Marxism in the center. And then you've got the left Luxembourg, the, the kind of heroes that they need on. And I just think that's um, clearly, you know, from, from looking at this stuff in more detail, that's a very, mis it's based on a truth, but it's a highly misleading uh, um, uh, account. And also one of the things, not just the Lenin cult a little bit, but you do see, I'm not saying it's the Luxembourg cult, but you do see this, Parvis did this, but he didn't have the same effect as also Luxembourg, you know, in, in the text, you get that a little bit as well. And I know Lars, you talk about that because it's the, you know, the, 
the heroes, two, two heroes of the left, that uh, Luxembourg and Trotsky in particular, that often pose uh, um, difficult questions for, you know, for, for, for how we approach these things. And we have to, you know, as soon as you start criticizing these people, you're immediately kind of suspect, right? Um, <laughs> I think that's, um, but yeah, that, that was something I brought up, uh, wanted to bring out anyway with, um, with that 1909 stuff. Um, if, is there anyone else, any questions, comments? Otherwise, I will um, just say that the um, if you have any ideas or suggestions for future work, let me know. I like I said, I've read um, the first four issues of Die Gleichheit in their entirety. Um, I have seven hundred, I think, to read, or it's 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 a lot anyway. Um, I think I can do about two a day if I'm two or three a day, depending on time. Um, you know, it's your classic social democratic magazine, so I think it's eight pages and four or six columns of just the tiniest <laughs> German fracture writing. Uh, it looks a bit like Iskra or the, you know, the standard ones that, you know, um, yeah. so you're there with a kind of magnifying glass, not that I, I do it digitally, but um, so I'm read it, reading through those. And um, yeah, I will probably um, give more of a, a authoritative, I hope, introduction in, in a future uh, uh, talk and future talks as I go through it. Um, but yeah, it was just striking to me that, for example, you know, some of the the leading uh, accounts on Marxism or women's liberation don't even really discuss the De Gleichheit, and that's obviously a, a, a huge uh, gaping <laughs> gap in the research. And you know, that's something that I'm looking to address. There, are, there are a few things that have been written here and there about De Gleichheit. I've translated a few articles from it in the past, but very you know, scattered articles here and there. Um, there is one PhD dissertation in German about it, which I'm about to start reading as well, uh, which gives a kind of overview of it and the, the people involved and who was it, uh, who was behind it, who did what. Um, one of the, the Zetkin biographers calls it a one woman show, at least for the, uh, for the early years. I think Zetkin did write most of it. And it was even acknowledged that uh, some of the women's conferences that she did it. And I think she turns around and says, well, you know, if anyone sends me good material, I'll, I'll, I'll blow them a kiss or something that, you know, I'll take it. But, you know, that was the, one of the jokes in the early uh, women's congresses. Um, so yeah, it's very much early days. Um, the, you, it's kind of, it's very interesting because you've got this weird mix of, of themes, I suppose. So you usually have a political um, opener, you know, the, 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 the opening article. First of all, though, you'll be interested about this, Lars, the, you have a serialization of a novel by Mina Kautsky, Clark, uh, Carl's, <laughs> Carl's mother, that kind of runs across the first, I think, four or five uh, um, uh, editions, and that's always at the bottom. Um, I, haven't read th I haven't read that yet, actually, but I, I will uh, get around to it. So again, that's obviously Kautsky and Zetkin working together, thinking about material. Also, in, in, in other editions, you get articles and materials addressed to children, so that's a kind of interesting feature of the Gleichheit as well, talking about these uh, uh, these gender roles and stereotypes. I do think Lars is right about there's something about Zetkin where she's kind of, instead of ch challenge, maybe she does challenge stereotypes by saying, you know, gross and balls, I don't know. But like, it's very much a feature of her writing I found throughout, which is kind of funny, but it's it's, it's very much, you know, uh, um, of its time, I think we can say, <laughs> right? you know, be a, be a real man, um, et cetera. Um, and yes, yeah, so there's usually a political commentary, the, the, the stories go on going. And then the, the first piece, which I will translate, um, well, I might do some of the Russian stuff. Um, again, the, the, these long articles on the, the, the history of uh, Russian revolutionary uh, female fighters. Um, 
which Parvis may have had a hand in. I'm not sure I'd have to do the, the, the background to it. But obviously Zetkin was very au fait with the Russian movement. She married a Russian uh, revolutionary. Um, so she wouldn't know a lot about uh, that. Um, but the first piece is a speech by August Babel, um, which is called Die uh, Stellung der Frauen in dem Kapitalismus. So it's the position of woman in, in capitalism. There's nothing, I don't think, Anne particularly new in there in terms of the, the general framework about how they understood that Zetkin and Babel, for example, understood um, uh, the, the role and position of women in capitalist society. Uh, but it's basically that, you know, the standard thing of, you know, um, women um, must, you know, women are workers, they need to be organized as workers, we can't uh, go back to this kind of guild mentality of keeping women out of work in the name of, you know, uh, conditions, etc. So, but it's, it's a shortish uh, piece, so that will definitely be the one I put next on the, on the stack. Um, so yeah, that's, that's about it from Die Gleichheit at the moment. Um, any, any other comments or any suggestions, anything you come across like you want me to look at? Sorry, Jess, just wanted to say, sorry, I know no, I'm no. talking, I know no, I'm no. talking too much. Um, so, but you know, like you're talking about the women's movement in 1891 in Russia, but I didn't think that there was any organized women's movement in Russia until after 1905. Um, but I think, is she maybe, is it about like the, the textile workers and the, you know, women organizing strikes and other protests or is it about women is it about women in like neurotics or yeah, it, it, it's basically exactly it's it's about women who often came from bourgeois backgrounds oh. became kind of populist uh, agitators renounced their wealth and you know well, well they, they didn't renounce their wealth they were just kicked up by their families usually right but they went to live amongst the people as it were and okay. worked with them etc so yeah she does talk about women I don't know if it's textile, it must've been textile factories actually, but she talks about women um, revolutionaries going to live and work with these people, eat their food, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but she also talks about the peasants and going to live among the peasantry and you know, do, doing that kind of work. Um, so this, this must be 1880s, maybe even, even earlier um, because it, it does have this kind of um, a retrospective feel to it, right? Um, yes, uh, the uh, women played an important role in the assassination of the are in 1884 okay. uh, so uh, and it's, there were a lot of heroes uh, I, there's one whose name is very famous <laughs> but not so not so famous that I can think of it right now uh, and then uh, as you said they go to the people movement which was in the 1870s mm. no, that's I'm a, I'm a little vague on my dates but it there it, it, it's it's not talking about strikes and stuff because that's in the 1890s so if it's 1891 it's too early but uh but that's uh but there were but the but the sort of revolutionary movement in the sense of uh uh there was a you know a canon the story of the populist the very heroes very heroic and women played a very large role in that in the leadership of that and sacrifice themselves and were hung you know yeah. for the assassination no so they, they they're, they're spoken of often as martyrs not always but often as martyrs and i suppose it reflects that time as well where german social democracy really when it looks to russia is kind of still talking about populism actually um i mean martov claims it's interesting because um zetkin claims that parvus was one of the first people to bring awareness of the russian uh, social democratic movement to germany Martov claims the same of himself in uh, in the article I translated in 1910. But, you know, as you say, this is definitely later, 1895, 
middle 90s right late 90s that you know the the i think even as well um and this is the point that Martov makes. He says that basically, until we came about in the in the middle late eighteen nineties, German social democracy saw populism as a solution. We were like, no, populism is no solution. You know, we have to base ourselves on the working class movement. Blah 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 blah. You know the usual story. So it, yeah, this is more. Um, yeah, it's 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 kind of you know, it's almost kind of Zetkin appealing to other. It's it's almost as if she realizes that at that time her audience really isn't mass proletarian women on one level it's kind of saying look look at these brave heroes you can become one educated women we have a duty to go and you know educate our our our, 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 our I mean, she wouldn't use the word sisters but you know fellow women in in the working class etc and you know these are these are kind of inspiring stories i suppose you would put it you know in inspiring uh, narratives of what these people have done um so it's quite it's quite interesting that, that was and a big focus on russia in the first uh, two or three issues um, so yeah um, I'm going to say only about 700 odd to go, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, there'll be, there'll be lots, there'll obviously be lots of material. And then the, the other thing which I didn't mention is just, and again, I haven't looked at these in details because that's really is the kind of small scale reconstructing. Uh, the thing then is reports from local um, uh, workers, female workers uh, um, associations. So they will be these, these clubs and, and, and associations that you had because of the Prussian uh, uh, laws about women's organization etc they were kind of often informal uh, um, what they call them Vereine, so uh, associations not not uh, um, political explicitly political organization and they would um, just be small reports of speeches given you know comrade Zetkin spoke in x part of Berlin about so that's a little bit more not boring in the sense that it's very important, but you need to be a bit more steeped in the in the history uh, of the of the women's movement, which I'm not because I'm just approaching this for the first time. But so at the moment, I'm just scanning things for more general theoretical and um, a more you know more gen general pieces of of interest. But there's, yeah, there's certainly a lot there. So great. Um, yeah, so hopefully more to come. And, you know, I'm from next year. I'll be able to do it pretty much full time. So that's that's oh, uh, that's always good. <laughs> Okay, um, I think we can maybe call it a night unless anyone's got anything more to say. Thank you ever so much for coming. Um, so I think the, the recording of this will probably just put on, um, I'll just strip the audio out if that's okay. And, and I'll just put it, put it amongst Patreons for now. It doesn't have to go like full public. Is that all right? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, uh, thanks to you all. Thanks in particular okay. to Lars as well for, for yeah. coming along and uh, throwing in your thoughts. And um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll okay. all be in touch. Great stuff, great stuff. Okay. Have a good party. Yeah, have a good party. <laughs> okay. <laughs> bye bye. Nice meeting you. Oh, it's all the very bye. best. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye, -bye. bye, -bye.